Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, looking ahead at 2020. Tony McAleer gave us a look at what may happen at Virginia, the pro-gun rally, which includes neo-Nazis and a potential conflict between them and the Antifa group. Tony McAleer is a former neo-Nazi himself. He's the author of Cure for Hate. Chachi Curl, the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute on polling on Harry and Meghan coming to Canada, on divisions within this country and how Canadians feel eventually we will or perhaps will not find out the truth about what really happened with Flight 752, Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752, which 57 Canadians lost their lives. Larry Goldkind is the lawyer for predatory serial sex offender Gordon Stuckless. Mr. Gold, Goldkind will talk about Stuckless being released, and my question was, why would you take him on as a client? Joining us on the program to look at this and look at, uh, well, 2020, is the Premier of Saskatchewan, consistently ranked the uh, most um, favored and uh, most liked and respected Premier in the country, Scott Moe. Premier, thank you very much for the time, and what's going on in Spiritwood? Oh, thank you, Roy. Yeah, we had uh, we're fortunate up here in the, in the northwestern portion of our province where we had uh, a hockey day in Spiritwood as well as a hockey day in Shelburne, two communities uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, where we see uh, all of the youth in the communities out playing hockey, celebrating uh, in the arena, and and uh, real r- real good events and and just some fantastic Saskatchewan community spirit going on here. And minus fifty two. Yeah, and, and a little bit chilly, but uh, it's it's warm. It's warm in the rink. Let me get you uh, to share with us your view of the decision made by the Supreme Court of Canada on Friday. And you on this program in 2018 had great concerns about one premier, and it was Premier Horgan, and one province, British Columbia, having specific and uh, and, and really um, undue influence on decisions that would affect everybody in the country. And you said if that happens, and I'm paraphrasing right. you, uh, the question is do we have a nation? So what's your sense of what happened on Friday? Well, this shouldn't be an unexpected decision, a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court of Canada on uh, on, on BC's uh, action to really delay or or, or stop a uh, uh, pipeline, uh, which is exclusively in the federal uh, area of jurisdiction. We've always said that, and and so this should surprise no one that this this unanimous decision has come forward. We applaud the decision, and and we truly hope now that uh, you know all of those involved on the ground at the uh, the local level of, of governance and leadership as well as uh, provincial and federal uh, levels can uh, work together to ensure that that we can construct this piece of nation building infrastructure so that we can continue to add uh, wealth uh, not only to communities uh, in Alberta and British Columbia but by extension to communities right across Canada. Premier, we have a federal government which wields really disproportionate influence and overrides provincial decisions. And soon the Supreme Court of Canada will have to decide whether this is the case with the Trudeau government imposition of its carbon tax on Saskatchewan and Alberta. And it'll be, um, and other provinces, uh, Ontario as well, of course, there'll be multiple provinces which will be making that case before the Supreme Court. Has the uh, Trudeau pushing aside provincial best efforts in order to have his way significantly damaged federal, provincial, intergovernmental relations in Canada. What are we starting out with in 2020? Just a, an imbalance? 
<laughs> oh, a very, uh, you know, a very divisive nation. And, you know, Roy, we've talked about uh, the results of the federal election and in different areas of this nation, uh, it, it really, uh, which are, are displaying, uh, you know, the differences uh, that we have across this nation. But as I said, we need to, we need to continue, uh, you know, working together if we're going to actually become a, a stronger nation than we are today. And we have some work uh, to do. Uh, to do there. Uh, you mentioned the, the Supreme Court uh, case that's coming on the carbon tax. This is a, you know, a, a very, very different uh, situation than what we've seen with the uh, BC's action on the pipeline where the judges have unanimously uh, decided uh, in, the, in the federal government's favor. We intervened on that case. We applaud that case. In the case of the, the climate policy uh, action that we have brought, um, what we saw at the the Provincial Court of Appeal in Saskatchewan was not a unanimous decision, but a, a very split decision, a 3-2 uh, decision where the minority or dissenting report was uh, much longer than the majority report. So uh, this is a case to watch as we move forward, not only uh, in the way of, of climate policy being uh, an area uh, to, for provinces to work with the federal government, not for the federal government to impose their will, um, but but this is an important case on uh, the discussion and the conversation around other areas of shared jurisdiction, if you will, uh, areas such as education, areas such as language rights. Uh, if the federal government is able to impose their will uh, when it comes to imposing a, a carbon tax on, on, on certain provinces and not others, uh, well, who's to say that they aren't going to take a step further at some point uh, in the way of, of education policy or language rights? Or, uh, so this is an important case, uh, not just for Saskatchewan, but for for all Canadians. Premier, uh, again, just referencing this Angus Reid Institute survey shows Canadians in the western provinces, Manitoba, and then strongly Saskatchewan and Alberta, being dissatisfied with how things are going in this country. You have an election coming up in, uh, in, in Saskatchewan this year. You're going to be running uh, for, to, to stay in power. What are the issues in your province? Oh, well, most certainly, uh, this, the, the Angus Reid poll is indicative of the, you know, the general feelings that I, that I get when I talk to people on the street across uh, Saskatchewan. And, you know, let me be clear, those, those frustrations are not uh, so much uh, with, with Canada as a nation. Uh, those frustrations are very specific uh, to the more recent uh, policy direction that has come out of our federal government over the course of the last four years. Policies uh, that are impacting the way that we create wealth, not only in, in our province and our communities, but, but in our families. And there's people here that have lost their job, uh, essentially, uh, due to decisions that have been made at the federal level. And, and that is where the frustration uh, lies, is, is in the direction uh, that our federal government is taking that is impacting uh, the, the, the health and wealth of, uh, of our communities in Saskatchewan. Yes, we're running an election this fall. Uh, we're very much uh, looking forward uh, uh, to preparing for that election going out and, and uh, asking for four more years where we have the opportunity as a Saskatchewan party to, to represent uh, this province at not only uh, the, the federal level, but as we take steps to uh, expand uh, the, our provincial autonomy at the international level, opening up trade offices around the world, expand our autonomy, with our relationship with the federal government when it comes to uh, taking greater control of our immigration policy. You know, these are these are all factors that are going to come into play in the provincial election here this fall in Saskatchewan. And they're factors uh, where you're going to see a very clear difference uh, between the, the parties that are running and asking for uh, the support of Saskatchewan people to set our direction as a province over the course of the next four years. What is the issue? If I were to stop off in 10 homes in different parts of Saskatchewan today 
And I were to say to the people in those, those 10 homes, ask the same question, what is the single most important issue in Canada, affecting Canada, affecting Canadians, affecting Saskatchewan? What would I get as an answer, do you think? The strength of our economy. Uh, you know, in, in Saskatchewan communities, uh, we rely on, on our ability to export products around the world, and we do, uh, we do this very well. We export some of the highest quality agri-food products, energy products, uh, mine products, potash, uranium, uh, as such. Uh, we export it at a very competitive price. And, uh, and we also do it more sustainably in a more sustainable fashion than anywhere else in the world. Uh, this is the, the challenge, uh, indirectly or directly at, at all of the tables, virtually all of the tables that I sit with, sit with, uh, families across this province is, you know, what are we doing at the federal level where we are actually adding costs to the, the already sustainable products that we, that we are producing? Nowhere is that more indicative. And just this fall, when our, our agricultural producers, the very best producers in the world, uh, took off a, a crop, they struggled to get it due to harvest conditions that were very, very wet. We had a lot of rain this fall. Turned around and uh, had to dry uh, the bulk of that crop from corner to corner in this province and pay a carbon tax on each and every liter of, of, of uh, propane or natural gas that they use. This is a, a, a prime example of a policy that uh, is wrongheaded, a policy that really is not effective. There's no other option uh, for drying this agri-food product. And a policy that, quite simply, the federal government shouldn't have imposed on Saskatchewan farmers. And it's an example of how those policies are affecting additional industries that are creating wealth for uh, Saskatchewan people, and again, by extension, people across this nation. I know one other, and we have about uh, 60 seconds, I, I know one other issue, which is of huge importance to everyone in Saskatchewan and most of us across Canada. And that is as a football game going to be played in Regina toward the end of November, the Grey Cup. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I know you're a huge football fan. Absolutely. We are going to host in Regina, Saskatchewan, uh, what will be the greatest Grey Cup celebration that the CFL in this nation has ever seen. Um, it, unfortunately, to many of the other teams in the league, I know that the, our Saskatchewan Rough Riders are, are heavy favorites uh, going into this season, heavy favorites going into uh uh, the Grey Cup game, as you, as you see, I've made up my mind on who I'll be no kidding. for. No um, kidding. But we invite the rest of the nation uh, to Regina for uh, to see the facilities, quite frankly, that we have built in the stadium and the International Trade Centre. Uh, we look forward to hosting uh, the, the greatest CFL celebration in the history of the league and the history of our nation. And, and I hope you can make it, Roy. Well, that's my plan. Uh, in fact, you know, I was in uh, Saskatchewan in 2017. I plan to be back again this summer. And, uh, and, and, you know, if the, if the Tiger Cats are in the uh, Grey Cup premiere, I'll be there and we'll teach you how to say Oski Wee Wee, Oski Wawa, <laughs> Holy Mackinac, Tigers, eat them raw. Can you say that, premiere? Well, and we will start fitting you for a watermelon. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks for kicking off the new year with us. Thank you so much, Roy. You have a great 2020. Thank you. You too. Premier Scott Moe, it is hugely important that we get some sense of unity and togetherness back in this country. And uh, the numbers that we're seeing are disturbing. Uh, as you know, the FBI has been big story. Arrested Patrick Matthews, a former Canadian Armed Forces reservist from Manitoba, and uh, two other individuals and members of the white supremacist group, the base. Matthews is charged with transporting a firearm and ammunition with the intent to commit a felony. This before a gun ownership rally in Virginia tomorrow. 
The FBI argues base members were planning an attack on the violent left-wing group Antifa or Antifa. A Virginia governor has declared a state of emergency for tomorrow's rally and has banned guns in the state capitol. Tony McAleer joins us. He's a former neo-Nazi and he's author of The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist's journey from violent extremism to radical compassion. Tony, thank you for taking the time and uh, the FBI arrests in the United States of alleged armed members of uh, this white supremacist organization we're told is called The Base just before tomorrow's pro-gun rally in Virginia speaks about what to you? Well, it's not, uh, it's not a surprise. Um, groups like this, uh, you know, if, if your listeners may remember, there's a group called The Order out of Every Nation that carried out a campaign of, uh, of murdering a Jewish talk host uh, as well as robbing an armored car. So these these groups are real. They do they do exist. They may not be large in number, um, but they're pretty hardcore when it comes to the activity that they're that they're uh, trying to to promote and, and enact. And I think um, the base is sort of uh, an offshoot of Adam Waffen, and Adam Waffen has been uh, linked to five murders in the last couple of years. Do you anticipate any uh, any any violence, any real violent situation developing in Virginia tomorrow? There's always the the potential for it when you've got uh, uh, two large groups of people with di- divergent views. Um, you know, there'll be there'll be mainstream people that go to you know rally for for gun rights, but those are the types of events that um, you know, like like parasites. These groups will will go and, and try and find like-minded people there yeah. amongst we, the more larger mainstream crowd. We should say that the vast majority of people who are there will more than likely be gun owners, responsible people, or just arguing for the right to continue to own firearms in the United States. Now, how do you view uh, Antifa on the left? They've committed significant acts of violence repeatedly as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I, myself, I'm uh, I'm a I'm a pacifist, um, having engaged in in uh, all sorts of physical assaults and violence and such. I know what it takes to what it does to a person to commit those acts. Never mind, of course, the the people that are that are victims of it. But I wouldn't, you know, people that advocate violence as a way of of stopping these types of groups. With I would advocate um, people to harm themselves in the in the process because violence is very destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, your book, uh, The Cure for Hate, at its core, Tony, what is the cure for hate message? Well, I think we, if we want to talk about uh, curing something in society, we have to understand it and know, know what it is. And I think at the root of, um, you know, if you look at the histories of people that, not, not just neo-Nazi groups, but the, the histories of young men who, for example, were arrested with ISIS and uh, Paris and Brussels attacks, there, there's a, there's a, they were not Quranic scholars, they were troubled youth with drug histories and, and criminal histories. And so what, what I believe that is at the core of, of uh, it is, is something we call toxic shame, and, and it's like a, an impaired sense of self, it's a self-alienation, it comes as a result of, of childhood trauma or emotional emotional trauma 
and it's it, it you know we people that have it see themselves as less than not good enough not smart enough weak powerless invisible and that one path that they cho- choose to deal with that is to go down the path where we dehumanize other human beings i believe the level to which we dehumanize other human beings is a mere reflection of of an internal disconnection and dehumanization so the cure is not to change their minds it really is to change their their hearts and rehumanize them and we do that with compassion yeah. and you were you were part of that uh, other side of the equation earlier in your life so let me ask you one more question in the time we have left is conflict open and violent conflict of great magnitude in major urban areas of the United States and perhaps Canada and other nations going to happen I'm, I've heard all these predictions that are very concerning what do you think well I think there's there's always the the potential as we move towards greater polarization and and a dehumanizing of of people who hold opposite opinions to to what we do and i think um, it doesn't have to be that way and i think as human beings we get to choose whether we live in fear or whether we live uh, whether we come from love and i think it's the responsibility of every citizen in this country and indeed the world to set an example and inspire the people around them to to operate and act out of love instead of fear. And everybody has the ability to influence the people around them, and I think that's the answer. Powerful message. Tony, I know the book's doing extremely well, and that's uh, good news. Uh, The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist's journey from violent extremism to radical compassion. Good talking to you again, Tony. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Tony McAleer. Chachi, thank you very much for the time. And can we start with what Canadians told you about the Ukraine International Airlines flight being shot down? What, what, what do we think? A time of terrible tragedy, grief, mourning that continues, uh, Roy, with, with vigils and memorials across the country this weekend, including here in Metro Vancouver, where I am. Um, but as we deal with that grief, we all know there are all these unanswered questions. What happened? Who ordered that plane shot down? Under what circumstances? Was it accidental? Was it deliberate? Will we ever really know? And the fact is the vast majority of Canadians are of the view that we will never really get the full and accurate story of what happened. Seventy percent say that they are either not confident uh, or not at, or have zero confidence. So really not a great sense of of um, uh, belief, um, faith that the full story will out. And that is despite not just Canada calling quite stridently for answers to this question, but also, you know, the government of Ukraine, Sweden, the UK, and others uh, whose nationals also lost their lives on that plane. Not to mention the tens of thousands of Iranians who have been protesting in the streets because so many on that flight were their own citizens. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, we talked about that yesterday with a guest, and it, it is such a terrible situation. And I think some of the public cynicism is, is just generally well-earned about whether we'll find out what the truth is when political uh, entities are engaged. And the fact the Iranians at the very beginning said, no, it wasn't us, it couldn't, it's impossible there was one of our missiles. That just sends the whole idea of chasing down the truth on the wrong track. But we'll see what develops. Uh, but then we know what the demands and the expectations are. Let me go to the issue of the divisions within this, con- within this country. Your poll headline begins with the words, 
two Canada's question mark. And your numbers show that while 61% of Canadians are satisfied with the manner in which things are going in this country today, there remains an east-west division. Let me ask you about the 61% nationally satisfied first. Is that a good number or should it be higher nationally? I mean, when you have a majority of people, certainly anything over over that, uh, you know, 55, 60% range, it does say that, that you're dealing with more than a plurality, certainly a majority feel that way, but a significant segment, you know, 40% of the population, think about your dinner table, folks at home, think about any place where there's five of you gathered, if you've got two in five who are not very happy with the way things are going in the country today, that's a significant sort of portion of your, your dining table, your your coffee clutch, your running group, uh, your hockey team, whatever it is. So uh, there's a certain, uh, a significant segment, a certain significant segment of, of Canadians who don't like the way things are going in this country today, and they are, are really broadly concentrated in two provinces. They are in Alberta, where 70%, a whopping 7 in 10, say they're not satisfied with the way things are going in the country today. And in Saskatchewan, we heard from Premier Mo earlier on the show, uh, for him, uh, 60% in people in his province uh, are unhappy with the way things are going. You talk about that two Canadas. We talk about the two Canadas because you've got to contrast that against parts of the country where people are absolutely thrilled with the way things are going. Uh, Quebec. More than three-quarters are very satisfied with the way things are going in the country today. In Atlantic Canada, nearly 70%, 67% say that. 63% in Ontario, 60% in British Columbia. So, Roy, when we talk about that east-west divide, we've got to be a little bit careful because British Columbians and Manitobans are not part of that. They're actually pretty optimistic about the way things are going in Canada relative to folks in Alberta and Saskatchewan. How, is, uh, British Columbia's, um, how do their numbers shape up? this time compared to what what you had last time? You know, um, British Columbians tend to be fairly bullish about the outlook for them. Uh, you got to remember things in, in terms of economic uh, growth, job rates are, are reasonably good in BC relative to a lot of other parts of the country. Yes, cost of living in Metro Vancouver is really high, but you don't, you, you know, jobs, jobs are there in BC. And the other thing is British Columbians, particularly in uh, Metro Vancouver, which is where half the population of the province lives, um, it is a part of, it's a region that is, it's, it's looking across the ocean to the Pacific. It's looking south to, uh, you know, Washington State and Oregon and California. And therefore, the, the, the troubles of the country, uh, really on the other side of the Rockies, um, there, there is a sense of separation. You know, we, we're not just the West. Yeah, Shashi, let me get you, let, let, me t- yeah. let me get you to hold on because I, I want you to stay beyond the break if you can. Jachi Curl has stayed with us, Executive Director of the Angus Reed Institute. We'll take about two minutes here. And want to get your uh, the numbers and the information and how you put it all together and the conclusion that you draw on the issue of how excited Canadians are about Harry and Meghan moving to Canada and then how excited they might be about picking up costs for security and any other expenses for the, I guess, formerly royal couple. How's it break out, Shachi? 
Well, you know, when the news broke just over a week ago that uh, Harry and Meghan, uh, I believe they're the, still the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, I think they're always going to be that, uh, were thinking about stepping back, part-timing their royal duties, trying to find a, a way to be financially independent while at the same time relying on the privy purse of the crown, uh, there were many reactions, and certainly one of the reactions in Canada, uh, I think particularly from the entertainment and royal media, was uh, um, clutching of pearls and, and great excitement around the idea that Harry and Meghan might come to Canada, might live here part-time. Uh, what we did not have beyond sort of anecdotal comments and streeters and interviews was a, a real sort of empirical reading of how Canadians felt on the matter. Uh, what we found is that the greatest emotion is no emotion at all on this subject. Uh, the, the whole thing is being met largely with a royal shrug from Canadians. 50%, fully half in this country say, we don't care one way or the other. And among those who do care, uh, certainly they're more pleased than upset at the at the prospect. A significant number of Canadians okay. are Let me, just in the interest of time, because I want to get some yeah. calls on. When it comes right. to the idea of paying for or supporting with taxpayer dollars, anything that has to do with Harry and Meghan, and specifically security has been talked about a great deal, what are Canadians saying about that? That's a hard pass. They don't, the three quarters say that they do not want to pay the security costs. Not one penny, not one copper to do with the security costs or other associated living costs with having the royals here. It's one thing to pay for them while they're visiting and conducting royal duties. It's another uh, while they're trying to live a private life. There is not any or, or great support for picking up the entirety of that tab or indeed any of that tab. A small segment, about 20%, say we should kick in some partial costs, but a mere 3%, that is statistic decimal dust, think that we should picking up. We should, we should be picking up the whole cost. I like that, decimal dust. Uh, thank you, Shechi. We'll talk again. Appreciate the time. The Gordon Stuckless case, uh, the three-decade serial sexual abuser of boys, was sentenced to additional time in prison, years in prison, uh, just months ago, and then was just released. Yesterday, former prosecutor Scott Newark shared his thoughts. Today, uh, we'll speak with Stuckless' lawyer, who's been a guest on this program many times, and we're always glad to have him on. Ari Goldkind joins us. Ari, thank you for taking the time. Why would you take him as a client? Uh, that's a great question, Roy. I get asked that a lot. I've been asked it since I took his case on earlier this decade. When you're a defense lawyer and you're proud of what you do and you don't hide from it and you're not a snowflake, you want to work in a system where no matter how notorious somebody is, and Roy, I know how notorious Mr. Stuckless is. It's the age-old question that's asked in law school. Would you defend Adolf Hitler? And if you're in this business for the right reasons, to make sure the courts work the way they're supposed to work, to, to make sure courts don't work the way they look in Iran and Saudi Arabia and all these other countries that we seem to not know how to distinguish from anymore, when there's 10 cops in a room, two prosecutors, you just mentioned you spoke to a prosecutor, there should be one defense lawyer in the room making sure the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed before somebody is, A, either convicted, even if it's a heinous, horrible series of crimes, which Mr. Stuckless's are, there's no doubt, and B, if they do plead guilty, that they receive a sentence that's in line with our laws, not necessarily in line with Twitter. So when people say to me, how do you take them on? How do you sleep at night? 
the answer I just gave you is the shortest one I could give you for radio now into the sleep at night one, like a baby. You know, I spoke with John Rosen after he defended uh, Paul Bernardo, and Mr. Rosen gave me the first interview, first radio interview, for an hour uh, after that, after that uh, Bernardo trial. And he said, if I remember correctly, that essentially the same thing, that everyone is entitled to a defense in Canada. And that's the fundamentals of our justice system. You know, that no matter how objectionable or terrible the person is alleged to be, before the verdict is brought down, they are innocent until proven guilty. The thing with Stuckless Ari, as you know, uh, Canadians are looking at a multi-decade series of offenses. And, excuse me, why would anybody after, and I, you just answer the question, I'm not asking it again, but the question is why would anybody want to defend somebody with that kind of record, but you just answered that. So you've also said he's no threat. How do you believe, how, how are we supposed to believe that? Okay, so this is the more interesting part of it, Roy, actually, and every time I've discussed this over the last six years, including a ton last week, people are always like, oh, I didn't know that part. I didn't know that part. So let's get into the part that really strikes at the core of what this is. And let's assume that everybody listening to you and I right now thinks Mr. Stuckler should be strung up by his you-know-what death penalty, lock the key, you know, throw the key away, etc., etc. And they're all outraged over it. First of all, and I'm not minimizing, so it's not like Seinfeld, with the, not that there's anything wrong with this. His crimes are from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Most people reading the headlines this week think these are crimes that occurred in the last 20 years. Mr. Stuckless was originally convicted in 1999 of a series of terrible crimes. We're not going to spend any time disagreeing with any of your listeners who calls these crimes horrible, life-ruining, and some of the worst of the worst crimes. Let's agree on that. He then comes out of prison in 2000-2001. Uh, now, this is key, Roy, because you know the way this system works. No parole, no supervision, no conditions, no peace bond, nobody watching him from 2001 until today and he was in the community from 2001 until 2014 or 15 never an allegation not one that he has ever touched another child not excusing what he did now why does that matter Roy because he's one of the very few worst of the worst and you know you and I could go right now through Toronto and see people shooting each other there are priests that have gotten away with this kind of behavior for years. There's gangbanging. There's knifing. Our city, I'm in Toronto, does not look like the Toronto I grew up in. So what's the point? Mr. Stuckless, from the time he came out in 2000, made sure that he would never, ever, ever harm another child. So he went off and he chemically castrated himself. And every single police officer and judge has always tried to grapple with what are his crimes worth, versus is he currently a risk so when he got out this week uh, sorry last month on parole it caused a lot of sensational headlines he's not a risk today now if somebody calls into your show roy and i'll end the answer here and says look he got six and a half years he got 10 years he that's too light he should have gotten light and ari i've uh, ari, i literally have 30 seconds so so go ahead i only no, have I'm just gonna say yeah I, I got you and so the point is the parole board only measures risk. And right now and for the last 20 years, he's not a risk. But in 10 seconds, if any of your listeners on another day wanted to debate should he get life 20 years, I completely, Roy, understand that discussion. Thank you for calling in. I always appreciate talking to you. Thanks, Harry. Pleasure, Roy. Harry Goldkind uh, joining us on the Roy Green Show. He, um, he always speaks his mind. And uh, in this country, as objectionable as... 
Stuckless is as little as you'd want them within a thousand miles of the same air you're breathing. Um, you are innocent in Canada until proven guilty, and then you have the appeals process and the system set up to let you out. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.